final event in a series of DEI events on empowered voices, inspirational journeys of women shaping careers and businesses. Our last event was timed to coincide with the wider celebration of South Asian Heritage Month. And I'm delighted to say that we have timed this event to coincide with Black History Month, which runs across the month of October and is dedicated to remembering important people and events in the history of the African diaspora. With all of us coming together today, we are creating a small piece of history because this is the first time globally that a, that a majority South Asian community group like us are participating in this important annual observance. City Hindus and City Seats are the largest network of Hindu and Sikh professionals in Europe, and we do a range of different events throughout the year. So if you would like to know more about our other events, you can join our mailing list uh, via our website or follow us on social media. I would like to say a big thanks to Asset Management CEO and Chairman for the City Hindu Network, Alpesh Patel OBE, and also Ekhtar Patel, who is the Global Head of Venture Capital at the Department for International Trade, and also part of the City Hindu Network's team. Without them, this event series simply wouldn't exist. I would also like to take, uh, give a big thanks to Amadeep Palmer from the British Asian Entrepreneurs HQ, not only for the great work he does promoting entrepreneurs, but also for recommending panel speakers to us. And of course, if you'd like to speak on one of our panels in the future, then please reach out to Alpesh or myself. Our past three events have had a very positive response from attendees on social media, and we very much encourage sharing your experiences of the event on social media, and you're welcome to tag City Hindu, City Sikhs, Alpesh, myself, the panelists, Seema, on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we can retweet, like, and share. So the format for today will be around a 20-minute discussion with our panelists, who you will be learning more about shortly, and we will then come to um, Seema, if she is in the, in the room, uh, and Alpesh for commentary. And then we'll move to an interactive Q&A with everyone here for the remainder of the event. So with all that said, let's meet our panellists. So one of our panellists didn't arrive, uh, didn't, didn't, uh, wasn't able to make it, so we've got the remaining three, we had four panellists. So, um, I'll move, uh, start with um, Rena. Welcome. Rena, you are, you are an ACA chartered accountant, working as an M&A analyst at a Canadian investment bank, and you're a one young world ambassador. You're the founder of This Girl Invest, which has been featured in both the Glamour UK and Cosmopolitan UK magazines, and which has a mission to reduce the gender investment gap by using education as a tool to empower women to invest and to feel financially confident. Is there any data that tells us how big the gender investment gap is currently and what the root causes might be? And can you tell us about your journey in getting financially confident? Yeah, sure. Hi all. Pleasure to be here today. Thanks for the introduction. There is actually, there's evidence out there that shows that 28% of women don't feel confident, and only 28% of women feel confident investing, which is really small. And actually there's a 600 billion gap, um, gender investment gap, uh, according to research shown by Boring Money. So really that's really big. That really means that there's millions, millions more men investing than women. 
And there's many reasons for this, um, but there's four that come to mind to me. The first one is the gender pay gap. I mean, I'm not going to go into too much detail. We all know it exists. We all know that on average, women earn less than men. Um, number two is risk aversion. So women are less likely to take risk, i.e. we are more risk averse. Um, and actually there's a stat out there that shows that 45% of women find the stock exchange too risky for them, whereas it's a very important part of the plan, of a good financial plan. Um, third one that comes to mind is traditional gender roles. So there's two things I'm thinking about here. One is conversations, like daily conversations that you have, like it's more likely that a group of men will talk about, you know, oh, I did this investment, or I did this trade, and therefore other men can pick up on what their peers are doing. Um, but also sometimes, like, parents are more likely to talk to their sons about investing and the importance of it, rather than talking to their daughters about it, who should equally know how to invest, especially now that we're early more than previous generations. Um, so that's the traditional, that's one part of the traditional um, gender roles. The other one is um, women tend to have more caretaking duties generally. I mean, there's been a lot on the news recently. I don't know if you've read. Um, especially, you know, taking care of aging parents or taking care of children and the burden at home tends to subliminally fall more on women um, than men. And therefore, there's less time to start to think about investing or invest time in careers. And the last one that comes to mind is knowledge, so education. So women tend to feel that they're not that confident <laughs> investing, not that confident, um, you know, talking finance terminology or investing terminology, and that really is the, the mission of, of this girl invest. So it's all about um, educating women, um, and you know, without the jargon, um, helping them to take control of their finances and to start investing. Um, which is super important because actually we live longer than men, like there's stats to show that, and therefore we need to have a decent pension pot um, there for us. Coming to your second question, Alpesh, about He's my. Oh, sorry. We all have to Let me check. Um, yeah. Can you guys hear? Can you, everyone at the back, hear Brenda? Anyone not here, not able to hear Brenda? Maybe stand up. Just let me know if you can carry and I'm coming to your second point around um, my own journey with financial confidence. Um, actually, my mom's in the room, so hey, mom. <laughs> um, starts with her. So my dad passed away when I was really young, and she took care of me and my brother all on her own. Um, so that's kind of the context in terms of, you know, my relationship with money, and then also she always empowered us to really think about education first, which is why this girl invested in all that education. Um, and I moved to the UK, uh, worked two, three jobs at university, um, became a chartered accountant and realised I actually didn't feel that confident myself with personal finance. So, you know, talk to me about corporate finance, I understand it, but personal finance is a whole different story, right? And there's loads of people that actually work in finance and feel like shame to talk about the fact they don't feel confident with their own finances. And starting to think about this and saying, hang on a minute, like, I, you know, I'm earning more, but I'm not feeling richer, which I now know is lifetime inflation. Um, 
And that's when I really start to think about mum's retirement, trying to help her out to, to you know, retire sooner rather than later. Um, which really got me interested in, you know, um, thinking about investing and investing early, especially because investing is super powerful if you start from an early age. So I actually started with rounding because I was just so scared to, to, to waste or lose my money. Um, and then I moved on to, you know, robo-advisors, so like your money farms. Uh, felt a little more confident. I was like, okay, my money's not going to randomly disappear. That's good. Um, and that's when I started to learn more about bonds and shares and funds and really the power of all the different asset classes that are out there. Um, but I realized a lot of my girlfriends didn't feel confident talking about it. They just didn't know where to start. And even though I was super excited about this, they didn't really want to talk about how it's too taboo to talk about money or just didn't know where to start. And that really is where it all started uh, to educate other women about investing. Thank you. Thank you very much. We really appreciate that. Um, also, we'd like to welcome Ash. Hi, I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> I know there's some cheap delays. I had to run from uh, Victoria myself. So uh, just, a, just a question on that. Um, key data point. So can, we take, can we take oh, yeah, sure. at the end? Sorry, I didn't realise. Yeah. What, what we want to do is we want to okay. um, give uh, all the panellists a chance to speak. Sure. And then we want to uh, bring in our question, the MPs, to ask. And then we'll absolutely... You'll be the first question. I'll, I'll try to remember first it. Write your questions down, <laughs> right, question down please. Uh, so look, uh, let's move on to the and now let's move on to the next uh, speaker, um, Ash. You're the former investment lead for the one hundred million dollar Polygon Ventures Fund, set up for investing in early stage Web three startups globally. And last year, you became the youngest partner to join Local Globe leading their blockchain practice. The fund is ranked the number one early stage fund in EMEA and the number three globally with the highest number of unicorns in the portfolio, including household names such as Robinhood, Wise, and Zoopla. What's inspired you to get into the tech investing side of things? And what insights can you share from your career journey that have helped you to become a partner so quickly? And uh, I'd like to also mention that, unfortunately, our, we've got tech issues today. The speakers are not working, so you're going to have to um, be speak louder. louder. Yeah. Oh, in fact, we'll take that. Maybe we'll do it one moment, actually. Maybe I'll to uh, get your speech. You know, it's actually funny. Um, when I answer a question, um, in, in the Western world, there's a saying, speak of the devil, and the devil shows oh, up, okay. right? But in India, actually, we say, um, um, sort of, in Hindi, what the, what the saying is, that if you think of someone and they suddenly arrive, they want to live a thousand years. Yes. Oh. So it's actually pretty much the opposite. Just What should I say to you? Oh, he works with electricity, so I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, back over to you, Ash. 
Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, now that is now. <laughs> All right. Now it's all coming down a little bit. <laughs> okay, so. Um, just the um, end bit? Okay, you mean just the question there? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, what's inspired you to get into the tech investing side of things? And what insights can you share? Uh, and what insights can you share from your career journey that helped you to become a partner so quickly? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a very tough question to actually to answer, um, and I'm going to keep it very candid. Um, I think, um, for me, after banking, which is the first job that everyone gets into after undergrad, I guess, um, apart from consulting, um, I felt that I wanted to kind of truly create an impact. Um, and I am someone who's asthmatic, born and raised in Delhi, um, of course I'm asthmatic. Um, uh, so I really wanted to work in climate change. This had been a passion area for me my entire life, and air pollution is something that really spoke to me. Um, I worked with Prime Minister's Office in India through a non-profit organization, which was supported and funded by Google and Gates Foundation and a bunch of other investors. Um, and after three years of working there, I felt that um, for the longest time, there was another organization, like a non-profit that had been set up, which was sister entity, that was so focused on ethic. And I looked up the stats. In the last 10 years, this, was, this sort of movement happened in 21, so like between 2010 and 2020, about $50 billion had been poured into um, emerging markets um, for non-profit investments into education. Um, yet, I didn't feel like there was enough impact for me to see that, okay, there's an entire city or an entire country that's completely educated. So that was like a moment where I felt, hey, Google created more of an impact on education in India than any non-profit that was supporting education. Um, and that's where I fell in love with tech. I felt that if I really want to kind of help impact the world, um, and it's a very sort of bougie statement to make, right, where, yeah, tech can impact the world, it truly has impacted the world. And it has the potential to truly impact the world. Um, I combined that with, I mean, I'm Indian, so I know math. <laughs> with what I knew, um, and hence became a tech investor. Started, um, which is now India's largest angel network, was also running like a top trading shop on the side um, for crypto and digital assets in general. Um, and it just all came together, and I was hired on the company. Amazing, thank you for sharing that. Sonia. You've worked in the fashion industry for 25 years, working for some of the world's largest and well-known brands as an international scale of artist, uh, expert artist, expert. <laughs> um, you've helped various businesses propel their brands to reach global recognition. You're currently the founder of award-winning boutique consultancy Fashion Strategists, which is dedicated to advancing sustainable practices within the fashion world working with brands to implement environmentally responsible practices, promote ethical sourcing, and champion a more sustainable future for fashion. What's been the catalyst for you to set up a consulting business that works at the intersection of fashion and sustainability, and what learnings can you share about scaling of brands? I really did not fit in 
I was, I, I left university being the only Asian girl doing my degree, I had a fashion degree. Um, I went into the world of fashion and I really was the only girl that was of brown colour working in the fashion industry. I ended up working in the luxury end of fashion. I started working with brands that were artisanal. And what I truly call sustainable, and what I mean by that is things were being handmade, things took two to three years to be made, uh, one-offs, um, and that to me was truly sustainable, but luxury. And then after 2008 hit, I ended up working in the UK High Street, which was the biggest shock of my life because that was not fashion to me at all. Um, I ended up working for, and you can go on my LinkedIn so you can see some of the brands I've worked with, but um, I ended up working in fast fashion and to me, ethics was really the underpinning of why I really started to have an industry that I absolutely love. Um, obviously there were lots of very different and diverse cultures that worked in it, but across the whole supply chain, I felt that there was very little transparency. Um, I saw slave labor, I saw um, people not being paid, I saw people of colour being treated very badly, um, sitting on the boards of many businesses, because I sat on the boards of, of many brands, I saw that actually we were being very, very underrepresented. I moved back from Germany in 2019 and something called COVID hit. I'm sure you remember it. <laughs> um, and I started to set up a consultancy and that was really based around the fact that I wanted to really make a difference. I wanted to work with brands that wanted to make a change. Um, I wanted to really get into the centre of sustainability. It's not just a buzzword, we need to do something for the planet. And I work across the supply chain. I work every with artisans in India where we make things by hand. We are working with not just the village, we are growing the village, we are training people. I work with lots of brands in the UK where we talk about recycling products, looking at waste management, um, renting. Tech is a massive thing which was mentioned already. Tech is really going to change the world. It hopefully will change the world of fashion. Um, there are mountains and mountains of um, fashion stock which are piling up right now. We are trying to make a difference. And this is what my consultancy is about. It's about trying to make a difference. Um, and coming to your second question, which was about scaling. I really believe that when you build a business, it's got to be from purpose. My business was really built from purpose because I love fashion. I absolutely adore it. But there was a side to the world that I worked in where I really hated it. I really started to question why I did it. Um, and I really believe that when you do something, you've got to build it from something that really truly sits here and you really want to build something. So that's why I started and that's where I, that's where I really think you should grow your business. Thanks, Donna. So, Sonia, we really appreciate that, and um, we also appreciate all the support you give us at the Seeks as a member of the advisory board. So, we thank you for that. Last but not least, Ahana. Is that Ahana. Ahana, you graduated with a physics degree from Imperial College in 2021. And whilst doing your undergraduate studies, you also completed internships at Morgan Stanley and UBS. After graduating, you set up a tech company called Clear, which helps consumers get better skincare product recommendations and provides a market intelligence solution to beauty brands. 
You've successfully raised $1 million in VC funding, and your company is already valued at $15 million. At the age of 23, you're the youngest person on this year's Forbes 30 Under 30 tech list. And your company has won multiple awards, including the L'Oreal Beauty Tech for Good winners. What made you think, I'm not going to go, in, not going to, go to work for a top-tier investment bank, and instead I'm going to build my own successful company? And how were you able to move so quickly from idea to, to a business valued at $15 million? Thank you for the intro, um, really excited to be here. So it's very strange hearing an intro like that with all of the uh, achievements um, sort of spelled out like that because the past three years of working full time has certainly not felt like achievement after achievement. Um, you know, if I, if I start with how I got to this stage because nothing was achieved overnight. Um, as was in my introduction, I graduated in 2021 uh, with a physics degree. And when I started my degree, um, my career aspiration was to become a physicist. I didn't know what a startup was. I didn't know even what Morgan Stanley or UBS were. I just wanted to go into academia. But once I started my degree, I learned more about what a career in academia actually looked like. Um, I don't want to give an entire lecture here, so I'll just say it wasn't as attractive to me as I once thought it might be. Um, and I still felt this deep responsibility that I wanted to do something positive with the education that I've had. Um, and I had no idea what I wanted to do, not really having enjoyed my degree. Um, so at that point, I just started applying for internships. Um, I think I became an expert in applying for internships. I think I applied to about 100 summer internships uh, every single year as an undergrad while just trying to figure out what it is that I was good at, how I could add value to this world somehow. Um, so that's how I, I started gaining some experience in investment banking, um, in, in software engineering as well. Um, but I have to say, neither of them quite scratched every itch. There were parts of, of the careers I liked, there were also parts of it that I didn't quite like. Um, and so it was after my second year of university that one day I got a cold message on LinkedIn, which is how most of my great stories start. Um, from a guy who said he'd come up with a startup idea, I didn't know him, I didn't really know anything about the industry that he wanted to work in, but it sounded like a lot of fun. The job itself sounded like everything I wanted to do. I wanted to write a little bit of code, I wanted to talk to some people, but not too many. Um, and you know, I wanted to have an impact and see the impact of my work directly. Um, so I said yes, not having a clue what I was getting myself in for. And that was the first job that I did that I loved. And, and it really did sort of hit everything that was important to me. Um, the challenge was, I didn't love that team, I also didn't love that idea. And so I didn't really see myself starting my career with them, but I knew at this point that I wanted to be a founder. That's how I can have my impact. Um, so the question was, well, these guys had a very rich father who was funding the business, so how on earth am I going to do this? And I thought that the best path forward for me would be to take my banking grad job, make as much money as I could in a couple of years, and I could use that to fund the business. Um, so that was the plan. After my third year of my degree, I secured these graduate jobs. My parents were happy. My mum was also in the audience. Um, and so, you know, I, I entered my fourth and final master's year fairly relaxed. Parents were happy. But again, another turning point was COVID. Um, so my fourth year coincided with when the pandemic hit. Uh, which meant that all of my extracurriculars and societies were cancelled and the thought of just doing physics all day wasn't a pleasant one. 
Um, and I thought, you know, if one day I want to start a company, why not just start working on something now and it doesn't matter if it doesn't take off? I'll still graduate, still take my grad job, and start something real in a couple of years. So, very long story short, um, a week into coming up with an idea, I applied to something called Y Combinator, which is a startup accelerator program based in San Francisco. Um, I, at this point, was getting rejected left, right, and center. I'd stopped applying for internships and was now applying for accelerators, and even my own university's accelerator rejected me. So it didn't look like there was going to be any success with Y Combinator. But I thought, you know, I've got very little to lose. Why not just see what happens? Um, and the reason I am sat here today on this panel is because they did take that, that on me um, while I was still a student. So Y Combinator were the first investors into my company. That happened halfway through the final year of my degree. Uh, so I dropped out of my master's, but my mum still loves me, so she's me. <laughs> um, I, uh, I turned down the banking jobs and I started working full time in January 2021. So my journey in certainly wasn't straightforward, but um, you know, in that time, we've, we've had some, some incredible experiences um, with, with the company itself. And I think, you know, to answer the question of how we achieve this in, in a relatively short amount of time, I think it's, again, it comes down to solving a problem and having that purpose in what you're doing. Um, for me, clear is very close to my heart. I've suffered with skin issues pretty much my whole life. The skincare industry is very large. There's a lot of money, but comparatively little technical innovation. And I like to say it's because there's not that many skincare enthusiasts, but also like totally like. So um, I figured, you know, what's a company I can build better than your average software engineer? Um, and, and so for that reason, I think it's just been about following the YC mantra. They say talk to users and write code, and we've done a lot of that over the past couple of years. Um, and of course, there have been many, many ups and downs, but fundamentally, um, you know, just having a clear vision, making sure you're solving a real problem, um, is sort of how we, we tend to guide all of our decisions. Amazing to hear that. Um, guys, uh, everyone in the audience, could we uh, give uh, all the panelists a <laughs> Not only that they've achieved so far, but they're yet 
to achieve. And I know they're going to choose. I was just filled with this immense sense of pride. The same pride I saw reflected in mum's face there and mum's face there. And have the other two panelists brought family members? Well, okay, fine. <laughs> Next time. You've got to, I mean, it's the most Indian thing to do. You bring the whole family. Okay. Oh, she exactly no. Well, your excuse. We will live stream next time. But, you know, as you took the video, and rightly so, well, I think we all share that sense of pride. But that's one thing. The other thing, Parham, as I was listening to the speakers, was this. Every single one of us here, whatever our age, whatever our skin colour, our religion, or no religion at all, we've got dreams. And those dreams might be anything from making your business that much bigger or more profitable to, I don't know, it might be finding the right life partner. It might be something more simple. All I would say to all of you, given where you are, given the journey your ancestors took to get here and be in this room doing what we are doing, is whatever that dream is, when you go home tonight, I want you to think what 10x that dream looks like. And there's a very particular reason I say this. It used to be the old joke, Indian parents, you know, are you going to be lawyer, accountant, or doctor? And my son, my five-year-old son, almost exactly a year ago to the day, turned to me, almost exactly a year ago, and he said, Daddy, why aren't you Prime Minister? Seriously, we've got a 10x stuff because our kids are bloody well expecting it. I think our community is starting to expect it. We've got to expect it of ourselves. And I think the things you ladies have said and how you started, why you started, I think that makes every single one of us in this room have that obligation, just because we're not on the dais, we're not the one speaking, have that obligation to 10x what does that look like for you because you owe it not necessarily to the people on the walls, but actually you just owe it to each other and it can be done. We know it can be done because it astounds us every time it is done. And if, if nothing else, it'll just make mum and the other mums and the dads who are not here just feel that much prouder. And for that reason alone, it's bloody well worth doing it. So thank you all. And we'll, we'll do Q&A, bro. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you, Alves. We really appreciate that. Um, have we got any, um, okay, um, have we got any volunteers to, to help with the roaming mics? Yeah? yeah? Oh, 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 thank you. <laughs> 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 um, we, should, we should give a shout out to our friends from Frostrup Team. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. A short term, yeah, a short term member representing the um, army today and he's always at, uh, always at these events. And of course, yes, sorry, um, Manpreet, thank you, Manpreet, for supporting as well. Um, it's always good to have representation from the armed forces, and um, yeah, we really appreciate everything you do. Um, um, all right, guys. Um, so we're going to open the floor now to questions. So um, first question. The bomb has gone. You forgot it. Yeah, quick. <laughs> Yeah, just a quick question about, uh, the, you said there's a there's gender gap in investing. Um, is there any data on, uh, are women better investors than men? Yeah, that's a good point, actually. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, yeah. Can you all hear me? Yeah. Okay. 
Um, yeah, so actually boils back down to the point around being risk averse. So women are deemed to be less risk taking or more risk averse, which actually means that we do less trades. So like trades cost money, right? Everything we buy and we sell an asset costs money. And we're less likely to do it and less likely to do it for like risky reasons. Like my friend told me to do it or whatever, right? So I think that there definitely is evidence there to show that actually women are great investors once we start, <laughs> which is the most important thing. Great question, thank you. Um, Hi, my name is Rita Chandri. I was previously a teacher and now a business coach. Um, I used to teach business studies. I've been saying for years we need financial education in our schools. So it's wonderful to hear what you've done. That's that's such an amazing achievement. Because when we educate women financially, you liberate them. They have more choices. They're never suppressed by anybody. but what I want to know is, how young do you start? Because I think we should start very young. I think we should start from the age of seven. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think more people are starting to come and to realise that actually, the earlier we start to talk about money, right, it doesn't have to be taboo, right? Children should know how to budget, should know how to um, you know, think about whether they should spend on that candy or not, right? It's a really good skill set to have. Because all of a sudden, all your life, you go not really thinking about money, and then all of a sudden, you're an adult, and you have to make these decisions with the money that you're given. So yeah, I think there's loads of apps out there now um, that start children early. I mean, for every parent, I think it's going to be different. I just think getting them started and getting them started early can really be positive. Can I just say, if your parents out there, book I recommend for the children to to you read, but for you to read with your children, there's which I pulled out if you Totally agree. Yeah. Good question. Um, just a quick question. Um, how can we educate people? How can we educate women who have never thought of something like this? Again, through really, you can see a lot of people who are probably more independent than some of the women who will be in the kitchen or in the house, being a housewife. How can we promote this to them? That's such a good question. I think it, it starts with all of us. Like, even if it's just me having that conversation with my friends, right, that already will conduct their thoughts about, you know, where to start. Like, it doesn't have to be, you know, 10,000 hours that you need to implement investing, right? So I think every little conversation that we can all have about something that we've learned is the way forward. Thank you. Um, okay, yeah. Okay, see? No, okay, yeah, perfect. Yeah. If you want to um, introduce yourself, and then also like if it's directed to one member of the panel, or if it's ideally a cross panel, then we can get you know other people involved. Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Simran. I'm a woman captain before I started university, so I'm 18. Um, I'm going to be studying economics. So I have two questions. Um, firstly, to Amanda. Um, and fantastic um, what you said, and I just thought that as somebody who's in the process of applying to spring, summers, and you know the grind of 50 assessment centres, um, kind of how you feel like you manage to balance the idea of starting an app and starting kind of a company for yourself with the pressure of obviously spring, peak, summers, and kind of the transferable skills that you gained from both. Really. Um, yeah, that's a great question, and I must start by saying I don't envy you. It wasn't fun going through all of those applications. Um, for me, it was it was that at every stage I had my priorities very clear. So when I first started university, as I said, I had no aspirations of becoming an entrepreneur. I wasn't spending any time doing entrepreneurial activities, but 
I knew that at that stage, what was important to me was figuring out my career. So I think it's always at different stages of life, there'll be different priorities. And when I started university, it was, I don't know what I want to do. I need to do everything in my power to figure out what that is. And sometimes, to be very, very honest, it was also at the cost of my degree because I have a certain amount of hours in a day, but I know that the extra hour I put into doing more applications will likely have a bigger outcome on my life than doing an extra hour on home sheets. Um, not to say don't do your homework, but you know, it, it's about prioritizing at every, every stage. The other thing that I really want to point out in my own journey is, you know, I ended up dropping out of my degree and I turned down my grad jobs for the startup. But the other part of that story that I also want to make very clear is that I had these graduate job offers and I actually got deferrals on both of them. And so what that actually meant in practice was I knew that if I dropped out, I would have up to two years to try the company, and if it failed, I would still have a stable option for me. It wasn't just, I'm going to chase my dreams and pray, you know, cross my fingers that everything falls into place. I had hedged my risks like an expert from all fronts so that my parents couldn't say no, because there was no reason to. So, you know, at, at different stages, different things will, will be more important, but as long as at the stage that you're at, you know what is important to you, it's about prioritizing that and just being aware that it changes at different stages. It will change from first year to second year to third year and onwards. Okay, thank you. Um, the second question was to Brenna about um, kind of uh, young investing and stuff. So I'm a young investor um, and a youth parliamentarian too. So I'm currently running a campaign in Brent, the constituency I represent, about financial education for <coughs> and specifically for women of colour and ethnic minorities. So I was kind of wondering whether kind of the government vets would at all be interested in partnering with um, youth, youth parliament, specifically my constituency at any time. Because, oh, yeah, absolutely, because I mean, we're really looking for people who are like super invest, like, super like interested in young people's education, specifically yeah. investing. So I just wanted to say thank you for your contribution. <laughs> Okay, how many people did you bring here as well? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, my name's Leah Chowdhury. This is my mum, I brought her with me. I am a fellow, I'm also a founder, um, but also the first Virginia woman to the English Channel. And, um, I was actually very shocked to find that my, our community were the ones that were kind of saying negative things towards me and towards my faith sometimes, and it was quite challenging. Um, so I think the question to you guys is that you have all become very, very successful in what you do, but what are you, what is your advice to me as a fellow founder to make sure that we are putting our hand out and helping and supporting our community the way that the Sikh and Hindu um, City Network are doing? Um, to make sure that other people are succeeding and doing such incredible things as well. Thank you for the great, great question. Um, let's have um, Ash yeah. answer that uh, first, and then we, maybe we can have Sonia, you can jump in. And then you guys have an answer to that as well? Your opinions? Um, yeah, I think um, so you, you raise a very, very valid point. Um, I mean, I work in finance, and being one of three women on the floor of 78 men, is not easy. Um, it is definitely something that has impacted the way I think. It impacts the quality of life, especially when you feel unsupported by the people that you thought were yours. 
Um, but at the same time, I think in my case, that generated a sense of insecurity that fueled my need to constantly prove myself. And I mean, um, when my friends kind of um, talk about Enyakalas or Enyakalas, they are like, yeah, you should stay insecure for the rest of your life. Because that truly sort of has birth like a fire in you, which makes you go out and do innovative things and um, at, at like, I'm technically a generally. So at a young age, it basically makes you feel like you can truly empower somebody in your own generation as well. So I think it's 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 a lot of burden, but I will say this, um, women before us have dealt with worse. Um, and having had a large number of mentors from the previous generation for, you know, in general, like brown women representatives, um, I can say the world is better, it's not perfect. Um, so I think the aim should be, let's try to make it slightly better for the next generation onwards. Great answer. So when I went to university, nearly 30 years ago now, um, as I often said, your parents didn't want you to be a doctor, a barrister, now said, right? Um, I went off and did one of those courses, and um, I left within three months, purely because I woke up every day thinking, I absolutely hate this. I dropped out of university, so you can imagine, you know, first child of immigrants dropping out of university, my parents were up in arms. And I said, if I go back to university, I want to go back and do what I want to do, and that is fashion. Um, and my parents were like, oh my God, she's going to start making Indian things. I mean, that <laughs> honestly, honestly was what they were thinking. They had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and I pushed through that. And I've had that negativity quite a lot during, especially from family, but of course. Um, but you have to push through it. You know, you have to, the only person that you have to prove anything to is yourself. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be successful in what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do a fashion degree. I knew I wanted to work for the best fashion houses in the world. I did all of that. I was sitting on boards by the age of 30. These are all of the things that I wanted to do. And when you prove it to yourself, no one else matters. Absolutely no one else matters. It's just about proving it to yourself and pushing through and not listening to anyone else. Thanks, Sonia. Um, Maybe just a very, uh, a very quick one. Um, I have to say I have an incredibly supportive family, um, but I wanted to address the point of giving back and what we can do. And I think the biggest thing for me is just not gatekeeping information, especially in the startup or VC ecosystems. The thing that I found the hardest, despite actively trying to learn, is that the resources weren't available. The ones that were were the polished, nice stories that people aren't actually willing to tell people what it's like. Um, and so, honestly, just just talking and not not shielding the truth, whether it's pleasant or not, from the next generation or aspiring entrepreneurs, I think is the most important thing, just so that people can be as you know educated um, about what they're getting themselves into. Thank you. I agree. I think the only thing I'd say is, um, someone once said, "Think of your weaknesses, and they're actually your strengths." And I think that's the way I've always like worked through. So. Thank you so much for putting this on, uh, guys. It's amazing to see uh, such amazing talent in front of me and also your wonderful organization here. So my name is Sanjeev Bhagani. I'm 
ambassador to the London Chamber of Commerce, uh, well, the London Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Um, my question was around data, and actually the youth parliamentarian party probably answered this question, because in terms of um, awareness within the South Asian communities, the Hindu and Sikh communities, what is, the, is there any data around um, access to information for women within these communities to understand what is available there from a policy, from government point of view, in terms of how to go about investing, how to go about starting businesses, how to go about X, Y, Z. There's some minefield out there. So, is there any data that, that's out there? It's a great question. Um, any panelists want to take that question? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, investing is my bread and butter. I should know the data, right? Um, so, um, there, globally, um, there is very limited data and resource that is done for people of color, generally, and then you add a layer of gender, and then that's a very small subset. Um, in London, there are plenty of sort of uh, people of color, BC communities, um, where, um, I mean, we, I'm, I'm a part of about maybe 15 um, such communities, um, out of maybe about 42, 43, last time I checked. Um, it spans across about 4,800 people working in tech, um, any student that's interested in working in tech as a founder or as an operator or as an investor. Um, the only prerequisite being their name of color. Um, when I joined these communities, um, they were about 38% female representation, um, which is, if you, if you look at the, look at the macro numbers when it comes to like female investors or female founders, Generally, the number is single digits. Um, so that amount of representation to be 38% in a sort of brown or people of color communities seem to be very high to me, which is apparently basically that they have been working. Um, and majority of the panels that I'm on, there's a, there's a very good friend of mine, she and I are always, how we became friends, is because we're always on the same panel. And we had an internal joke that whenever somebody wants diversity on their panel, they would call the two Indian girls because we not just bring gender, we also bring color. Um, so when we started looking at other panels, we have seen over the last seven years the sort of the ratio has been improving, which makes maybe the audience feel more representative, and that has a trickle down effect into the communities and how they're being engaged as well. So. Thank you, Ash. Uh, great, great answer. Uh, did anyone else have any other panelists have any other uh, anything to add on? I can't quote any data. <laughs> what I can say, though, is I've attended local council events um, where groups of women have come to meet to talk about business and, you know, loads of grassroots um, organisations and um, women trying to set up businesses but not knowing, like, the basics of tax or accounting. And, you know, you obviously go to your accountant to talk to some of these things. It's always nice to have... Um, a resource and actually councils are starting to set up websites. I know Breakhouse definitely has one. Um, so yeah, so there is more and more resources out there than ever before. Great, thank you. Um, all right, uh, next. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Hi, hi everyone. Um, my name is Roman Ryan. I work in artificial intelligence and also UN Women Delegates. I'm helping close the digital gap in the world. 
And I just wanted to say first and foremost, thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm so inspired. I think this has been my favorite event out of all the other Hindu and Sikh events, not saying anything against the others. <laughs> but it's been really, really inspiring and it's so nice that we can have this open and intimate conversation. I just wanted to say just about the question that came before. There's this amazing book called Girls That Invest, which is very similar to your name as well. Um, but it's founded by Simran Court in New Zealand and she really cares about upskilling women around the world, especially minorities, on how to invest. So I highly, highly recommend you go buy that book, which has also got a course, which is really great. Um, but I have two questions. My first question is for the entire panel. I'm really curious to find out, there are so many problems in the world. How do you go about finding a problem that you care about and that you think is worth solving? So whether it's fashion, sustainability, or skincare. My second question is aimed at Ahana, but I'm welcome to the entire panel. And it's around financial stability. I think as women, especially when you're starting something new, there's not enough investment going in. You know, you're not in salary, there's inflation, we're in a living cost crisis. How do you go about feeling financially stable and doing things that you love and enjoy? Okay, great, great questions. Um, let's start with the first question. Um, I love the answer, Anna. Um, you know, as a venture capitalist, I see about maybe 20 founders a week. 
um, and even this kind of bear market. Um, the one thing I actually say, the best founders that we have seen build companies like Twitter, Robinhood, etc. in our portfolio are um, those who literally felt they could not sleep at night because the problem had them up, right? It could be as simple as creating a social network where you feel the amount of value add in the network that you generate would help human beings at a fundamental level, almost philosophical if you think about it, right? Goes beyond like the monetization capabilities of the business. Um, and we categorize them as outlier founders. So as an early stage investor, the one thing we want to see is what makes you an outlier. Um, the entire spectrum goes from the way I see it is missionary, where you are like higher purpose, philosophical way of thinking, why, why am I on this planet? You know, I was supposed to do something bigger and buy the world. All the way to like mercenary. I mean, like you correctly said, we have to make money. Um, so somebody who's like, I want to be the richest man in the world. Right, or the richest woman in the world. So it's just across the spectrum where you see yourself. And if you don't see yourself on the spectrum, maybe it's worth thinking this is not a problem solving. Right? And then you kind of give it time. If there's no right age to start up, um, give it time, find the right thing that triggers you, that literally makes you stay awake at 2 a.m. and researching on Reddit, for example, right? That how do I solve this one problem? That is when you know that you've found the right idea. Yeah, very fascinating inside there on that side of the table. Uh, Sonia and then Brenda. So obviously my consultancy is looking at the problem of sustainability. That really is kind of the, the, the fundamental of, of why I set it up. Obviously we work across the fashion industry, but a lot of the brands that come to me come to me with a problem. They, they want to make the planet a better place. They want to do certain things in their businesses where they just don't know how to do it. So that's what we're constantly doing as a consultancy, is constantly asking questions, constantly learning. I learned, I mean, I've been in the industry for 25 years, and I'm still learning every single day. And I think that's the most important thing, you keep learning, you keep learning from what you're doing, keep learning from your industry that you're in. Look at everything, look at the world, look at tech, look at what is making life easier, look at finance, look at how to raise capital. It's problems and constantly asking the questions, I think that's really two things really. I think one goes back to what I was saying earlier to really think about you know those weaknesses that you think you have are actually just your strength. So where in for example my situation I was like gosh I'm so like not confident with my finances, right? Actually if you can turn that around and make that your strength. And two is to think about like, almost do a, a self-time audit. Think okay, you know, where you, where you're spending your 24 hours, right? Try and think, okay, what are the things I am Googling or asking ChatGPT, whatever, right? Like you'll start to see a trend and a sense of like specific topics that you're interested in naturally without even consciously thinking about it. And that's the way I'd move forward. Thank you, fair enough. Um, we've got two, actually, uh, there's two questions there, but I'd like to come to um, Alpesh, because Alpesh is a, is a hedge fund manager, so maybe he's got some insights on this question as well. Alpesh. Yeah, I guess, as I get older, my brain stops working so efficiently. I, I like letters, and, and P and P, there's two letters to remember this evening. By, and it's, it's passion and purpose. And you're absolutely right, if you can find the purpose, then your life will be a hell of a lot more fulfilling, and God knows you, as you get older, will care more about purpose than you will about everything else, because the other things will have fallen into place, such as, hopefully, steady income, good family, etc. So finding that purpose, uh, but as Ash said, I, I rather than 2 a.m., I think it's a bit 
Light. I think it's a bit light. I go with the 4 a.m. rule. Despite my passion. Yeah. And my 4 a.m. rule is this. If I'm willing to work till 4 a.m. for it, or get up at 4 a.m. for it, then that's it. That's the thing I've got to do. That's the one. And that's probably the best practical test I can think of. Because we all get excited about things that are around midnight. And we think, yeah, I'm going to do that. I mean, me, every single night, midnight, diet starts tomorrow, marathon next morning. I am passionate as hell at midnight. 4 a.m.? No, not so much. And that, that, that's probably a quick shortcut. And we need those shortcuts because time's running out and you want to get to find what those are. And, of course, the third sort of part of, of that is, is money. It's preferably got to earn some money. You'd be amazed, however, that when you've got passion and purpose, you can find commerce, you can sell stuff off the back of that. I mean, you know, you only need to look on TikTok to see a bit of passion. Maybe not for purpose. Um, those kids are making more than I'm going to do in my entire bloody life, and I'm in the headstone industry. Not to say. Yeah, the money bit will come along if you focus on the other two. You're, you're a TikTok star anyway, aren't you? 200,000 followers right wow. now. Wow. Killing it. The only family I've got. <laughs> okay, They're so all here. There, there was a second part of the question, but uh, maybe we can, we can quickly, maybe we can take that question, we can, if we're like dying on questions, we can come back to that one. We'll Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Justine. I work in the social impact consulting space. Firstly, thank you so much for organizing this event, and it's great to hear the great stories and inspirational things you all have gone through. I think DEI is a very important area which I like to focus on, and one aspect of DEI, which is gender, is something which I wanted to you know, check with the ladies here today gender equity. Like the point which I'm trying to get at is have you faced gender issues at work? If yes, how have you dealt with them? And any, you know, any advice which is there for all of us here, how to deal with it? Because it's an important area, we all go through it every day, and how to deal with it, because it really impacts all of us. Any advice, which is your experience? Great, great, great question. Uh, who would like to go first on that one? I was, um, I was the only Asian woman and the only woman, sorry, Asian and woman, um, sat in senior leadership meetings. I was put down by men all of the time and I fought back. Um, you have to, you know, I, I fought for far too long to get to where I got to and I was not letting a man bring me down. So I just fought through it. Um, the other thing is that there are lots of women that get to a point of leadership Positions that want to do the same thing, they want to bring you down. You've just got to push through it. And I'm, I'm sure you all agree. I'm sure, you know, if you are in leadership positions, there are other women that will put you down. Um, and you've just got to push through it, you know, you've got to believe in what you're doing um, and keep going and, and not care about what anyone else thinks. I mean, I never have, and I've got to where I am today, so. Um, honestly, that question just made me a little emotional. Um, having faced that literally every single week of my life, professionally speaking, um, the amount of sexism and ageism that exists is, I mean, now I treat it as a joke, but it's like Stockholm syndrome, you know, you have to kind of have a sense of humor about it. Um, like you correctly said, um, everyone has to push it down, irrespective of their gender. 
Um, I'm currently sitting on half a dozen board meetings, like sort of boards, and I attend all the board meetings. Um, and it's it's actually true when you have a lot of non-diverse voices around the room, they will want to edge you out because they don't think you have anything new or different to add to the conversation, especially if everyone is like a couple of decades ahead of you as well. Um, I had three advice for someone um, you know in my situation a few years ago. And all of those still stick very true. One is don't take shit. Just absolutely not. If somebody prevents you from it, if somebody tells you your email was too direct or aggressive, um, show them an example of another email written by somebody who's not as diverse as you. Um, and you see the difference in which you have to kind of amend the beginning and the end and request and say please more often than somebody else would. So do not ever let anyone tell you that you are doing something incorrect, which you feel you have yourself seen somebody else in your team or in your workplace too. Second, never ever think that your perspective is not going to be valid. Um, I've been on boards for long enough to realize that like, there's an echo chamber that exists within those people. And sometimes the way you think, what you bring to the people, is actually very different and valuable. So, you know, not to do my own porn so much of it, there's this one company that I advised on a GDM strategy, which is very different from all the other, you know, sort of advice that they received from the other board members. And that one revenue channel went from 1 million to 84 million in less than nine months in terms of Chicago revenue. So there is there is some merit to the kind of random contrarian idea that you would have. And third, find your find your people. They could be your support system personally, they could be amazing colleagues that you find professionally. Never ever underestimate the power of having a people around you. Do these three things and hopefully um, it works out for you. Great, great. Um, ladies? Uh, yeah, I mean to, to answer the question simply, yes. Like sexism in particular, um, all the time. And I think, you know, coming into this, this is also my first real job. I did internships, also in very male-dominated industries. But I think when I started the company, again, with the subject matter being skincare, tech, these are two things I'm good at as a woman, um, I actually felt like being a woman made me a better fan or better suited to build the company that I am. Um, so, you know, when I would hear about all the injustice, I would, I would always sort of wave the flag that it doesn't matter, I'm going to be judged on my achievements. And I think that veiled him crashing down after I did my first funding round, um, where I got about halfway through my, my round, and I just turned 21. Um, I knew zero investors, and it was all during COVID. So it was literally just grinding. It took me over 200 meetings to close that million. And I got about halfway through, and I thought, is it just me, or like most of my investors women? And then I looked at my tracker of all the meetings I was taking, and I'd written up the fun name, whoever I was talking to, etc. And I just added a column for the gender, the, the main person that I was talking to. It turned out that of all the meetings I did, about 75% were with male investors, which is roughly expected. Um, in terms of the number of people that had invested, uh, over 80% were women. And if I looked at dollars invested, so accounting for the check size, over 90% of the dollars I've raised were decisions led by women investors. And what that meant is my success rate was orders of magnitude higher with female investors than with male investors. Now, forget about you know social politics, <coughs> just looking at strategy. If I'd have known that going into my funding round, I would have done things very differently. 
And, you know, yes, there are definitely women who can be harsh to, you know, upcoming women. But I think, especially as a founder, when you're solving a problem and you're trying to talk about that problem, I've walked into meetings where male investors have said, skincare's not an industry. And you can give them all the numbers that you want, but if they don't believe something, you're not going to change their mind. And that's why there's a whole different question about the presentation, why it's so important to have you know, women on the other side of the table. We need more female investors as well. Um, but, but I think what I, I just wanted to add here, because I think we've had some great points about what we can do, and, and, and that's exactly right, what's been said, is just power through. But I think it's equally important to acknowledge that it's not a level playing field. And my slightly pessimistic view on it is it's not going to be. Society is built in a certain way where you have to accept that if you have identical metrics to someone else, you're not going to be judged fairly. And I've had this numerous, there's too many examples to, to say now, but, um, but acknowledging that if something's not working for you, it's not necessarily that you are bad or your company is worse or your numbers are worse. You do have to remember that it's not going to be fair, but as I said, your presentation is what's going to make the difference. So in a way, by powering through, whether it's as a founder, whether it's as an investor, or getting to become an investor by going through banking or tech or whatever it might be, you're doing your bit to solve the problem by just being there. So basically keep powering through as the other panelists already said. Um, so I think we all covered it really well, so it's going to be really important. Um, but yeah, I'd just say, like, worry about things you can control. There's a lot going on, and you know, I think there's a lot of work going on in the background to change you know, the status quo, and hopefully it will change in our lifetimes, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> but just, yeah, the way I tackle it is just to think about the things that I can control, and at the end of the day, you know, do whatever I can to put things in, in my favour. Yeah. Um, thank you all for sharing your stories. Um, so I'm going to use this to sort of plug something that we can offer um, to the youth in the room, but also to ask, ask um, Ash a question. So, Hani talked about that problem of getting internships, and, and one of the things that we've recognised in our industry, and I also work in the venture capital industry, is access, especially for you know, black and minority ethnics um, and a lot of the other equality strands. So, one of the things we offer in the summer, almost every year, is an internship for four people, which we'll be running for the third year now. And we offer two weeks at NMC, which is our fund, um, to learn about you know, the investor experience, but also two weeks at our portfolio companies. Um, and it's been really, really well received. So there are qualifying conditions, but if you're an undergraduate and you want to potentially apply for that, um, come and find me afterwards. I'll give you my details. But, you know, love to, love to hear, hear from you. Um, and when we open for an application, we'll consider you. So the question is for Ash. Um, so working at Global Globe, um, also we'd absolutely love to partner with you on this internship. So we don't need to scale. So if you, if you know if anyone would be interested in the fund, I'd love to talk to you. Um, but with your like scale and influence as an investor with many, many portfolio companies, do you actually see anything that is working to promote gender uh, representation and equality, whether it's at the founder level, the portfolio to the leadership level? Um, we try ourselves, but I think we also suffer from the echo chamber. Um, so I'd love to, to hear anything that you know that's working. Um, and finally, Robert, you're much funnier in person than you are in the videos. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a compliment. I look forward to seeing you online, mate. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. Um, um, I, I maybe start with an anecdote because um, I found this out two months after being hired by my 
apparently they were recruiting for my group a little over two years. Um, and there, sort of, they had hired about eight different search headhunting firms across the world to literally fill one single role of partner, the one that um, I ended up filling. Um, and why did that happen? I was very shocked because I'm like, hey, you get sort of good 10, 20 candidates, you put them through a standard interview process, and then towards the end, you apply for what exactly you're looking for, and you pick the right person. They said, absolutely not. Because that results in people who have the access and the privilege to develop those skills for a long period of time and they have primed themselves to get into the capabilities that are needed for this role, which is unfair to everyone else in the world. So it's not an equitable as a recruitment process. Took me by surprise. Then they told me how exactly they went about it. For two years, they were very clear that they were going to do full optimization. Um, do for basically means top of funnel. It's not, it's not something to eat. Um, so top of funnel basically means that they were very clear that till the point there is minimum 45% female candidates that have been shortlisted based on their profile screening, as well as a lot of the diversity factors that they took into account, they're not going to start the interview process. So it is that level of clarity that is sometimes needed. It is harder. But as a fund, we are literally the largest in Europe and we've been ranking number one for the last five years. There's a reason why. Across all early stage VCs, we actually have the highest number of female GPs and partners in Europe. Right? I mean, I don't want to say that, oh, like, oh, the female partners in my team are responsible for the success. But in general, they are... What is the percentage here? 42% in our fund. Yeah. That's exceptional. Yeah. So after I joined, it was 42%. So um, it's exceptionally high. To give you context, in EMEA, I think that venture capital funds all across like early stage, all the pre-IPO, the number is never above 20. Like there are very outlier funds that are even reaching 25. Majority of the times you have like that number is single digits, it's less than 10. So just that level of clarity is thought that it is not just about gender, I mean, this is a question about gender that I'm focusing on that, but the diversity metrics that they had in mind were so deep. They were also like, oh, this person should not have come from it another VC family, right? Because um, the idea was that they would again have the same exact network and the capital that will be deployed will be again within those same circles. We have Stanford CS degree, sorry to offend any Stanford alumni, um, and you basically go to a VC and you say, hey, I have this idea, and you get like multi million dollar checks. So his entire life was about bridging that inequality that exists when it comes to capital deployment because not to what Star Wars here, but with a lot of with a lot of power comes great responsibility. Um, and that is something that very few investors in the world truly understand. And that is I had like multiple offers and I picked this one only because of this reason. That the, the the depth of values that they have as a team is so different and that is very reflective in the portfolio founders that we work with as well. Great answer, Ash. Um, we have. Oh, hello? Yeah, uh, great. Yeah, please do introduce yourself. I, I think this is going to be the last question, so it's fantastic. I did two more. Okay, um, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll do all that. Okay, maybe we'll, okay, yeah. Up, up first, yeah, first over to you. Hi, Best question, yeah.
every single day I meet founders who are converted creative ideas um, and telling me and educating me about a bunch of problems that even I was not aware of. So that right there is a very <laughs> brilliant way of staying current, I feel. Um, what I do at a personal level, I mean, of course, um, stay away from social media, but um, at a personal level, I would definitely say I love to talk to people. I don't just be approachable. Um, I am that random, annoying person on the tube who's always like, hey, what do you want to do? Right? Like, I'm literally that person. Um, or I would sort of be shopping at a supermarket and I would pick up like four different brands of like vegetables and be like, what's the difference? And I would randomly talk to like another shopper. So just be approachable, ask stupid questions, um, never feel like you have to kind of pretend for somebody. I am literally the stupidest person in every single meeting I have every day. Because if I'm the smartest, it's not a work, meeting worth having, is what I feel. Um, so, I mean, just listen, I think. Just listen, pay attention, and just a shout out to what you do for a living as well. I honestly never felt that I needed an exec coach till I actually had one. It's like therapy, right? Once you once you experience it once, you understand the values of it. I've had an exec coach for the last a year and a half, maybe two years now, and it really, truly has changed my life. So anybody who is sort of already a working professional and is looking to tap into the potential that it could have and the quality of life that they deserve to have, reach out to us. <laughs> great, yeah. Great, great. We've got, well, I think we've got one each, so we'll do both questions in one day. Okay, yeah, well, let's get both questions then, and then we can split the panel to answer whichever one they want. Sure. Hi, I'm Shannon Dillon. I just graduated from the London School of Economics with a law degree, and I'm a founder of a mentoring organization that empowers young Sikh women to enter the legal field. Um, now, the biggest common theme that I see with all my mentees and something that I experience on a daily basis is a lack of self-confidence, a lack of self-esteem, and imposter syndrome. Now, for all the young women in the room today, what's your biggest piece of advice to someone like me at the age of 22 and for all the mentees I see who struggle with imposter syndrome? Great question. And let's get the other question Super question, Hello, um, I'm Neil. Um, I'm a consultant creative director for beauty and fashion. And my question actually very similar to hers. I started like you, Sonia, 25 years ago with imposter syndrome as well. And you know how toxic fashion industry is and but when I worked I worked at like place like Vogue and L and I started out like Euros, white Eurocentric, super privileged and you're like going against the current. Again, how did you, for me, it was, it's my right to be here. Nothing's gonna stop me. <laughs> and it's really great to hear the younger generation, you know, I can say that time because we're probably the same age. <laughs> Gen Z, you're still, seems like you're still fighting um, going against the current, maybe because you're working in male-dominated industry, where ours is a privileged white industry. So again, what incentivizes you, and what would you say to keep going? Super, super question. So they're kind of both imposter syndrome and, you know, keep going. So pick whichever question you would like, and we'll give everyone a chance, and then we're going to finish up, and then um, our question is going to 
doesn't take the uh, event home with a uh, concluding Everyone remarks. come back to my place. <laughs> well, that would be cool, yeah. It is a great place, by the way. Yeah. I love this place. <laughs> All right, so um, we'll start. Just go back to right, so I'll show it to you. Sure. Um, I think um, sort of the summary of both the questions for me um, is similar. I'm just going to say thank you for your making. Um, it's work for me to work for you. Um, um, I appreciate this. The example that I give, the analogy that I use is, you know, the first time when I went to the gym, I used to be 100 kilos. I worked very hard to lose whatever little weight I have. Um, the first time I went to the gym, you don't feel you're a fit. You can't do anything at all. Um, it takes you ages to be able to do one thing correctly, but as long as you keep at it and you pretend like you're doing a lot in the gym every single day, it works out. So, fake it or make it. Um, all of us have imposter syndromes. Anybody who tells you that they're confident on the stage or any stage or any event is lying to you or they are supremely overconfident and not personal. Um, I think it's really important to, to surround yourself with really positive people. Um, my network of friends really aren't from the fashion industry at all, but I choose to be empowered by men, women, and children, uh, people from very, very diverse backgrounds. Um, and we all lift each other up, and I think that's really, really important um, because they are the people that are going to carry you. Once my network of people, or, or, or if somebody starts to become negative, I do actually tend to cut them off because I feel that that brings me down. And I don't mean that to be—I don't mean that to be disrespectful. I just feel if their their negativity is bringing me down, it's not part of my world. So I think it's really important to be surrounded by people that lift you up because that's how you are going to empower yourself. Um, so. What I would say is, if you're feeling imposter syndrome, it's because of a conscious set of decisions that you've made, in the sense that you don't have to challenge yourself. There is an alternative life that you could lead where you're completely within your comfort zone, you're not necessarily learning, but that reality could have existed for you, but you have made the conscious decision that you want to grow, that you want to learn, that you want to challenge yourself. And so if you're feeling imposter syndrome, you're probably on the right path. <laughs> So yeah, I agree with everything that everyone said. Um, to be honest, I'd say focus on yourself. I think, you know, when we focus on what other people are doing, we compare and therefore, you know, you feel like, oh, should I be doing that or should I be doing that? I think, frankly, just focusing on your values, focusing on what you want to get out of it helps. Um, and just also putting yourself in a, in a position of power, right, mentally, I think that, you know, makes a big difference. So where I have been in situations, you know, being in finance, you are put in those situations a lot. It is to really reiterate to myself like the things that I have done well in the past. I keep a little folder in my inbox where I've got like good feedback, etc. Like there's little ways, little things that you can do to boost again, whether it's having a good um, system around you. Those little things can help. Super. Well, that is all the time we have for questions. Can can we all give a big round of applause?
Thank you. I will. Oh God, I will stand for this. Things creak when you get to my age. I'm not that thank you, Purim. Uh Before I thank you in detail, Purim, I've got to give a couple of shout-outs first. Uh, I'm on the advisory board of the Black British uh, Black Business Institute, rather, and I think Chandra's there. She is. Uh, we'll have her speaking at a future event. She's in fashion. When we talk about communities, we don't just want it to be just Sikh and Hindu communities. Actually, it has to be across the communities. Because actually, per capita, we are, if you look at the GDP per capita, if you look at the income, the education levels, we are actually the most privileged of all the communities. We are the ones who are doing better than virtually any other. So, as you said, with great power comes great responsibility. As a man-child, I can tell you got the quote where it came from a bit wrong. It's not Star Wars, it's Spider-Man. Sorry. We have that responsibility to reach across all other communities to make sure we're all uplifted because, as Ashok, and he's got the badge there, his testimony to, and his colleague, sorry, I missed your name, Manpreet, his colleague, his testimony to, were actually British. You might not be there at the end. You still got the Indian passport. Very much, I'm going with a very These are problems, well. Yep. You're in the wrong place, aren't you? I'll give you that. That's the way there's office into that. Thanks, mate. I'm just proving you right all along. The other thing I've got to do, you've already thanked the panelists. Wow. And it really just started getting going and better and better as we got on in the evening, I think. I think it just got better and better as we got on. So, look, another round of applause. Why did Parham and I do this? My wife said to me, the second best decision I ever made, the first one was married her, of course. <laughs> the second best decision I ever made was having Parham on the advisory board of City Hindu Network. Because he has been the person who's put all these things together. Without him, this would not happen. None of these events, none of the panels, none of the formats, and if you look, my God, you've got to look at the, this guy. You do mechanical engineering at the university. If you look at the level of detail, including where everybody is to sit, the questions, the timing, the format, and, I was about to say, I do not know why this guy's single, but all of a to think. <laughs> yeah, this is amazing. Uh, so, I've got to thank Param, but there's a there's a theme on which I want to close, and it's something which we haven't really touched upon. We cannot, given where we are, not touch upon what's going on in the world around us. And Param, I love you. You're my brother. I love you. And I say that because there are people who want to come between me and my brother. They are divisive. They want to put thoughts into my head and make me turn against my brother. The thing is, love is a choice. And I love my brother no matter what. I don't like fanatics. My fanatics or anybody else's fanatics, whatever my fanatics means, but I love my brother no matter what. And it's getting crazy out there. 
It is absolutely getting nuts. To the point we've already had some people say you don't do social media. I've actually just blocked the news channels. Given in the finance industry, it's a bit risky and dangerous for me to be blocking the news. It might improve my performance, actually. I block the news channels. I'm going to leave you with these words, which relate very much to why we as City Seeks and City Hindus have come together, why we have partnered with BBI as well, and the broader community here, regardless of your religion, the colour of your skin, ethnicity, and obviously regardless of gender. And God knows the men have been in charge for so long. Look at what a wonderful job you've done. In case you're wondering, why are they doing these women events? Bloody hell, the world needs uh, somebody else to take over. I'm going to leave you with these words, and you will recognize these words. These are the words that sort of get me through when accidentally I slip upon social media and somebody is trying to be divisive and start to poison or try to poison my mind. And they're trying to poison all of us in this room. And these are famous words, so you will recognize them. The aggregate of our joy and suffering. Thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species simply lived here on this planet. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely indistinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and in triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, in our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another. Carl Sagan said those words, and they're as true today as they ever have been. I wish you a good evening.